Well done, Camille. That is the ultimate nightmare passage to have to read, isn't it? Sort of word of advice for everybody. Learn all of that. Where the heck is Phrygia? Goodness sake. <laughs> um, good, we're continuing this uh, series called Empire and Kingdom, looking through the book of Acts. And um, uh, this passage um, is a pretty well-trodden one. I reckon most of you have heard a sermon or two on this before. Um, and uh, some people love it. Some people um, think this passage, this is how it should be all the time. Uh, and then there are others, and I suspect some of you are a bit like this, who go, well, I don't really like the sound of that. Um, it, it's a bit crazy, and I've, uh, yeah, it's not really for me. Um, I think it's a badly misunderstood passage, and as ever, the intent of these sermons is for us to look carefully at this text and understand what's really going on here. And I hope um, we'll all feel a bit more comfortable with this uh, by the end of it. Um, often when we talk about uh, the presence of God and the, the voice of God, we talk about the language of a, a still, small voice, but it really isn't that this day. I remember um, uh, back in the summer, it was August, ironically, and um, we were on holiday with our girls, and uh, the weather was terrible. And uh, we'd been in the house all day because it had been raining, and eventually the evening came, and I just bundled everybody in the car and I said, look, we must go for a walk, we must get out. And we were in Croyd in North Devon, and we walked up to Baggy Point. Have any of you been there? Absolutely lovely. And I got out of the car and walked up the hill. And as we walked over the brow of the hill, uh, we were completely bowled over by the wind. It was remarkable. Um, but my little girls, who are only six and three, instead of being terrified by this, were completely exhilarated. They'd never experienced anything like it. They thought it was absolutely fantastic. Started running around like mad things, obviously running into the wind, but not really getting very far. They loved it. And I was thinking about that in this story of Pentecost. That actually, this day, the experience of the voice of God, the experience of the Spirit of God, wasn't the still, small voice, but it was like a hurricane force wind. <coughs> And it wasn't that people asked for this to happen, it just happened. This is God's moment when he steps in and he starts something remarkable and new. It is a massively significant uh, moment in the history of the story of God's kingdom. This is where it begins. I think one of the reasons why this is complicated and confusing is because um, uh, the word Pentecost has got so sort of uh, tied into by either this story or one sort of branch of the church who sort of claim it for their own. Um, and it's worth understanding some of the history of uh, Pentecost itself because it's really significant. Uh, the word Pentecost means 50 days, Pentecost in Greek, 50 days. And um, it was a celebration of 50 days since a great event. It was a, a festival which had been celebrated right through the history of Israel. It was 50 days since the Passover. You remember the Passover, don't you? It was uh, the point at which Israel were uh, rescued from Egypt. Um, uh, you had Pharaoh and Moses battling it out and all of those plagues. And uh, uh, Pharaoh kept changing his mind and holding them back until that dreadful final plague of the firstborn children. And uh, Israel is set free. And they, uh, in the middle of the night, with just what they can carry, uh, flee from Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert. Well, the, de the celebration of Pentecost was a celebration of 50 days after that event. The people of Israel were in the desert, and Moses went up a mountain called Mount Sinai. And there he met with God, and there he was presented with two remarkable stone tablets on which were engraved 
the very foundation of the law of God. That is Pentecost. Pentecost is a celebration of Moses on Mount Sinai. And uh, the Jewish people uh, celebrated it every year by coming to Jerusalem from uh, all over uh, Israel and from, from beyond. Jewish people and Jewish converts from uh, the world at large would all uh, gather. And it was a festival of first fruits. Now, these two symbols are really important. And uh, you're going to see, you probably can already start to grasp some of the significance of it. First was the, uh, the giving of the law. The second is it was a symbol of first fruits, that they would essentially bring the first bits of their harvest uh, to give to God as a thanksgiving to God, and also kind of as a prayer that the rest of the harvest would come in. It was a, a festival of thanksgiving for the giving of the law, and a festival of first fruits, of the beginning of what was to come. That's why everybody was in Jerusalem. Pentecost wasn't invented by the church. It didn't, wasn't invented by this day. It already happened. It was already a big festival. And on that day, this uh, few disciples who left, and it really wasn't many, it was 20 or 30 people tops, were gathered in a house, and uh, they'd, been, they'd seen Jesus ascend, as we talked about last week, and they were praying. And they'd spent a lot of time praying because they didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. They didn't know what God's plan for them was. And early in the morning, as they gathered in this house, the most remarkable thing happened. And there is a sound like a hurricane blowing through the house and the Spirit of God descends on every single person in that house. And you get this uh, tongue of flame on each of their house. And they all rush out into the street where people, obviously the, uh, the city's crammed. And people realize that something astonishing has happened. And word spreads like wildfire and everybody gathers. And as they gather, they hear the most remarkable thing. Because all of these uh, disciples, all of whom only speak Greek, maybe a little bit of Hebrew, suddenly start proclaiming the wonders of God. And every person who comes close starts to hear the wonders of God declared in their home language. This is a festival which has gathered people from all of those places that Camille so ably described. All over the known world, from every country under heaven, says Luke. They're all there and they hear the word of God proclaimed in their own language. It's the most remarkable event. But the question is, well, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? And lots of people have had lots of thoughts about what this means, but I'm kind of more interested in what Peter says all of this uh, means. And um, I think it is really very uh, significant. The first, I think, is this, uh, 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 this sign of uh, speaking in tongues. Um, uh, it's probably worth recognizing that um, uh, God has always been praised in Hebrew, as far as these people were concerned, and particularly as far as all these visitors were concerned. They spoke uh, hundreds of different languages, but when they came to praise God, they did it in Hebrew. That's how it worked. You praise God in Hebrew. Hebrew is God's own language. It's a sort of symbol of the fact that God is a bit parochial. He likes the Jews. He doesn't particularly care about everybody else, or so they thought. So Hebrew is God's language. And then suddenly on this day, the Holy Spirit suddenly gets everybody declaring God's wonders in every single tiny language that's ever been spoken. And all of these people from backwaters who've only ever heard God spoken of in Hebrew suddenly hear God spoken of in their own language. Do you start to grasp some of the significance of that as an event? Do you start to see that the sort of very things that Jesus has been talking about right through the Gospels, that God isn't just interested in this little group of people, God isn't just for one nation, that that is starting to, uh, uh, to be uh, seen in reality. This event is the kingdom of God exploding out of Israel. 
into the world uh, as uh, at large. This is uh, the kingdom of God. It's a statement of intent of the kingdom of God uh, heading out across the known world. But what does it mean? More than that. Well, in some ways, I think the point is that very question. Look in verse 12. Um, all of these people who hear it ask that very question. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? It is intended to be a provocative event. It would have been quite shocking for a lot of people because actually you're only supposed to talk about God in Hebrew. It's a very beautiful, reverential language. Talking about God in the common tongue is a bit rude. It's certainly quite provocative. What does this mean? Why is this happening? And uh, uh, the, uh, the presence of God clearly is at the midst of this. These are not people, as they point out, who can naturally speak these languages. What on earth is going on? And so Peter stands up and he explains what's going on. Peter's declaration here. And uh, don't forget, this is Peter, who you probably all know. Peter, um, uh, a bit um, uh, loudmouth, uh, tends to blunder somewhat, uh, tends not to get it most of the time, has the occasional good moment, like recognizing that Jesus was the Christ, and then the bad moment, like completely denying him right at the really important time. A bit up and down, a bit haphazard, old Peter. Peter's from nowhere, suddenly gets it. And he starts quoting Old Testament scriptures all over the place and doing crazy exposition on them. He's remarkable. I don't know whether he's actually been sitting down with his Old Testament in the last couple of weeks um, or whether this is some just amazing miracle of God. But Peter is transformed at this moment. And he stands up and he gives this sermon. Now, one last thing to say before we talk about the sermon is that in the book of Acts, there are four main sermons recorded. You would think that basically because the apostles are going out all over the place preaching sermons, you get lots of sermons or lots of snippets of sermons. But actually Luke, I think very carefully, chooses to only record four, maybe five sermons. And I think the reason he chooses them is because each of them has got a different audience in mind. It's like catching a snippet of what the message of the apostle was, apostles were to different people. That's significant because um, they have different messages for different people. We'll see what it looks like when Paul gets up and preaches to the uh, philosophers in um, uh, the middle of uh, Athens. Uh, it's a very different message to this. We'll see what it looks like when Stephen preaches to the hardcore Jews in the middle of Jerusalem. But this is Peter preaching to, well, this really interesting group of people. He describes them here as God-fearing Jews and converts to Judaism. They are essentially people from all over the world who are seeking after God and uh, that they have found in Judaism um, uh, the heart of God uh, to that point. Uh, they're faithful, God-fearing people and uh, this is the message to them. Um, so as I say, four or maybe five different sermons recorded in Acts. This is one of them and it's a very significant one. It's not a complicated sermon, but um, uh, it essentially does two things. The first is this big quote from uh, the book of Joel. And you can see this in verse 17. This is an Old Testament prophet called Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, in the middle of that those words were some words which um, I don't know how you responded to, but words like uh, dreaming dreams and prophecy and all those sort of things tend to make some of us feel a bit freaky. Uh, others people go, yeah, that's brilliant. We want more of that. Um, I don't know how many dreams and prophecies you guys have. Um, 
But actually, I think the thing that's important to recognize there is both uh, uh, the language of prophecy and the language of dreaming dreams uh, isn't what we necessarily think of in terms of, I don't know, telling the future or uh, declaring something that people don't already know. It's the language of knowing God. The prophets were those who proclaimed the truth about God in the midst of all of the misunderstanding of God. Dreams are ways in which God reveals himself to people as he really is, even though they may be surrounded by all sorts of falsehoods about God. This is the language of people knowing God for themselves. Let me uh, point you to another uh, prophecy along similar lines. This is from um, uh, Jeremiah 31-33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God. Do you get now something of the significance of the day of Pentecost? This is the contrast to that ancient festival which celebrated God giving uh, himself to people on these two stone tablets. The law was the, the way in which people were to relate to God. People often think it was um, uh, legalistic in the sense that the law was, well, you need to do this and then God will love you. It wasn't, actually. Uh, uh, the law was given to a, a redeemed group of people. It was Israel. They were rescued. God had made them his own people. He'd called them by name and called them to himself. But the mechanism by which they related to him was through this law. This was how they were supposed to behave in order to be the people of God. On the day when that was celebrated comes this new beginning, this new way by which people are to relate to God. No longer is it by the written code, but it is by the Spirit of God which writes God's law on our hearts, which writes it on our minds, which allows us each, every one of us, to know God for himself. You could call it the democracy of God. In the old days, the only people who really knew God were the really important ones. Kings, prophets, priests. Think about Moses. Moses was the guy who knew God face to face. Everybody else got it kind of second hand. Moses came down the mountain and said, um, oh, I just met with God, and he says this. The new promise is, you don't need a prophet or a priest or a king because you can know God for yourself. Every one of you can have the same relationship with God that those great figures of the past has. That's the promise of Pentecost. It's the democracy of God. And you are granted through the Holy Spirit to know God for himself. Just you and God. Personal. That's the invitation of Pentecost. The second part of Peter's sermon was this um, uh, really amazing bit of uh, exegesis, a sort of explaining the Bible thing, which uh, is not like Peter at all. And uh, I'm not going to go into details because it's slightly complicated and not necessarily that relevant for, for, for us. Um, very relevant, though, for uh, the people he was speaking to. Uh, these were people who uh, were Jewish or were drawn to Judaism. And the greatest figure in Judaism was, of course, the greatest of the kings. King David, he was the anointed one, he was the great uh, Messiah king, he was the one who saved Israel from their enemies. And Peter does this brilliant piece of work on, on um, uh, King David's writing and makes the point that King David wasn't even writing about himself. He's writing about Jesus. King David writes about the fact that God would save him from the grave, that he would never decay. And Peter points to David's tomb, which is just over there, and says, well, it can't be about him. Who was it about? David, um, uh, Peter points to the resurrection and, and says... This shows 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of King David. He's greater than King David. He's the person that King David was talking about. And his conclusion in um, verse 36 is, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, two observations on that. One, that's a bit harsh. They weren't even there. These guys are visitors to town. When Jesus was crucified, they were back home doing whatever they were doing. And yet, Peter calls them, I don't know, because they're Jewish, because they're part of this system, he calls them to account for what happened. Seems harsh. The second is this um, uh, dual phrase, which I think is interesting. He says, uh, uh, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's, a, it's like repetition. It's like almost not quite necessary. Either of those words would have done, and most of the time the New Testament uses one or the other. Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Christ. Peter says he is Lord and Christ. And I think that's very interesting and very significant. I think it is a political as well as a spiritual statement. Jesus is not simply the Christ. He's not simply the anointed one or the saviour. He's not just there to redeem uh, Israel. He is Lord. It is a statement of kingship. Jesus comes not simply to save you, but to institute his kingdom. And that is a political statement as much as it is a, a spiritual one. And what um, Peter's going to do in a minute is to call people out of their old kingdoms, out of their own nation, old nations, out of who they used to be, into this new kingdom of God. We use that phrase all the time. And I don't think we grasp the political dynamite that it was in the early church. To walk around in the middle of Rome talking about the fact that you have a king and he has a kingdom is the sort of thing which tends to bring a lot of Roman armies into the region very quickly. It, it really is. It's a very provocative statement to make, and I think Peter makes it very clearly. Jesus is not just Christ. He is Lord. He is the King. However, the people's response to all of this is absolutely lovely. And uh, this doesn't happen all the time. It certainly doesn't happen in Acts. It certainly doesn't happen in real life all the time. But um, uh, there is something about this group of people who just get what's going on, probably because of what they've just seen in front of them. In verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They basically get it. They get that they're guilty before God, that they, even from a distance, are caught up in this tyranny of evil which has crucified the Messiah, which has rejected God. They get that those Old Testament prophets we were talking about them as those who turned their backs on God. And they say, what must we do? What hope is there for us? And the answer is beautifully simple. Peter replies in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The response to getting the crisis here, the response to understanding our guilt before God, is that simple. Repent, turn around, be sorry, and then be baptized. Repentance is about letting go of who you think you are. And that's particularly significant for these uh, Jewish people who were all about their law, all about the relationship with God that they had, all about the fact that they were part of the people of God. Lots of them had converted into that in order to feel like they were closer to God. 
Peter's saying you need to let go of that. You are before God are nothing. You have no status, no rights. And yet if you repent and are baptized, you are suddenly incorporated into God's kingdom. And then baptism. Baptism in the New Testament is very clearly the mark of the kingdom. It's the sign of new life. It's a sign of sort of being cleansed and forgiven and of starting again. It's not a new idea. Um, uh, converts to Judaism would have been baptized. So lots of these people would already have been b baptized once. Um, lots of the others who were actually Jews, for them, the idea of being baptized was an awful idea because of their heritage, because of all that they were before God. Baptism is about starting over, about accepting God's forgiveness. And it's a mark of being brought into this new uh, kingdom. It's a little sign, I think, of the new creation. And uh, each person who is baptized uh, makes that statement about leaving one kingdom and being part of God's kingdom. Leaving the old way and being part of the new creation. We haven't done baptisms at Church on the Corner for ages, actually. And um, uh, uh, it's lovely. I'm quite excited about the fact that um, we're doing one at the end of October. Anna's getting baptized, which is going to be fantastic. So that's, that will be evening service, and yeah, it's going to be really nice. But I thought I would just say at this point that um, uh, if any of you haven't been baptized and uh, it's something you're thinking about, it would be great to have a conversation uh, with you and talk about uh, whether it's the right thing for you to do now. Um, it, it's a really simple and beautiful symbol of, uh, of making that statement about being part of God's uh, kingdom and about God's plans for the future of creation. So that's what's going to be happen happening. Um, anyway, so our uh, passage here finishes with a beautiful picture, and uh, it's really the picture of the birth of the church. I am struck in verses 42 to 47 that uh, the impact of Pentecost, that the impact of sort of the new creation rushing into uh, this group of people and transforming them is actually quite simple. It's not um, a, a radical transformation in the way that we might think about it. Look at verses um, uh, 42. Um, then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were gathered together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Luke is actually looking back on these few days after Pentecost at the beginning of the church as a golden age because it didn't stay like this. Uh, this period of peace and uh, blessing uh, wasn't something which lasted. People being added to the number daily and enjoying the favor of all the people in Jerusalem, that was not something which lasted. But I think Luke wants us to look back on it as a little glimpse of eternity. It was a little moment, which I think lots of Christians have too, uh, right at the beginning, when uh, you first sort of encounter God's blessing, uh, when it's just all poured out on you, uh, a time of peace, a time of just exhilaration and joy, uh, a time when God just holds you close to himself and continues to help you to understand more and more. Many of you will have had that and then been completely horrified when uh, a few weeks or months later, it's not like that anymore and you start to think, oh, I've got it wrong and it's all gone wrong and... I think Luke wants us to look back on this as a little golden age, just as we do in our own lives. The trouble will come. The struggle will return. And uh, most of the book of Acts is the story of these two um, uh, empire and kingdoms struggling together. But for now, 
is a little glimpse of eternity, a little picture of how uh, it was and how it will be as God's blessing is poured out on those people and people are uh, drawn into his uh, kingdom. In the midst of this is a bit which people often find quite provocative. It's in verse 44. It says, The believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as they had need. Um, and uh, I think that's a really lovely, if slightly scary, uh, picture. Um, but I think essentially where it came from was that these people really just understood who they were. They understood that they had been taken out of all of these different nations and places and brought into one family, God's own family. And suddenly because they had this new identity and this new family around them, well, their attitude to themselves and their possessions just changed. They realized, well, this stuff isn't mine, it's God's. And if my brother or sister is in need and I've got stuff, well, what on earth would I be doing not giving stuff away? You see, what it was was they responded to people's needs and it just overflowed out of them. And I think one of the marks of the Spirit is that generosity. That as we begin to understand more what it means to be part of God's family, to be part of God's people, so we just start to let go of all of the stuff that we hold on to, all of the stuff that we think defines us and protects us. Our possessions actually tend to weigh us down and cause as much trouble as they do protect us. And the early church was able to get that actually, it's not mine, it's God's. If I'm short, well, God will look after me. And so for now, I'll look after other people couple of little conclusions then from this passage. First of all, that it was the Spirit of God, not uh, the will or the character of the people which transformed the early church. It was the Spirit of God which blew in like a hurricane and turns Peter into what he became. It made him bold and courageous and confident and compassionate and willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of this good news. And that Spirit of God is a gift which is open to all of us who are willing to ask for it. It is a gift which helps us to know God for ourselves, that we're no longer uh, dependent on some written code, on some set of rules. We no longer depend on prophets or priests or kings to intercede for us, that God calls us to himself to know him for ourselves. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit offers us an understanding of God's purpose. As uh, uh, the law is written on our hearts and minds, so uh, uh, God's will is revealed. And we become uh, far more confident in what it means to be his people, what it means to be his people uh, together. And it gives courage to stand for him. We talked last week about the fact that often in our culture, it's a very difficult thing to stand uh, for what Jesus stands for. It's a very difficult thing to be a Christian. And it is the Spirit which gives us the confidence to not really care that much about the consequences. To say that my allegiance to, uh, to my Lord and my Christ is far more significant than what people think of me or uh, what could happen to me. It is the Holy Spirit which brings selflessness, a willingness to let go of that thing which I think is the greatest curse of humanity. The fact that we are so damned self-centered. It's the thing which isolates us from one another. It's the thing that isolates us from God. And the Holy Spirit uh, starts to help to strip away that self-centeredness and allows us to open up to the new family that we're part of and the God who has called us to himself. And Pentecost is the declaration of the first fruits of the new creation. It is here that you see the beginning of what humanity is to become. This is God's plan, not just for here and now, but for eternity. And Pentecost is the first glimpse, just as the Holy Spirit at work in you and in me is that glimpse of God's purposes for eternity. It is the most remarkable day, perhaps the most remarkable day of all. 
It is the day which transforms the church into a trembling, uh, insecure, uh, and not knowing what they're doing group of people into a, a remarkable bunch of people who shake up the world. And that same Holy Spirit is available to you and to me. So we're going to pray in just a minute that God, in whatever way, whether it's with the rushing fire for you or in the still small voice for you, in whatever way would be pouring his Holy Spirit into our hearts. Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to do what it will. Lord, we pray that it would give us that confidence in you. It would give us that knowledge of you for ourselves, that it would stir up our hearts and help us to be your people, not simply as individuals, but as a church. Lord, we pray that you shake us as you shook the early church and that you do a work amongst us which sends us out to proclaim your goodness and your kingdom in this broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.